Welcome to the Manuscript Academy podcast, brought to you by a writer and an agent who both believe that education is key. The beauty is the people you meet along the way, and that community makes all the difference. Here at the Manuscript Academy, you can learn the skills, make the connections, and have access to experts all from home. I'm Julie Kingsley. And I'm Jessica Zinsheimer. Put down your pens, pause your word counts, and enjoy. Hey, everyone. So happy you're here. We have a lovely guest today. This is Emmy Nordstrom Higdon. They are one of our newest faculty members, and they are absolutely amazing. From the first time I spoke with them on the phone, it was just delightful. No, it's one of those things. Sometimes you get someone on the phone, and you just like how they sound and like how, not just the voice, the energy, obviously. You're very oh, sweet. Thank you. So I think all of you will have that experience, too. Emmy, why don't you introduce yourself and tell us a little about you? Yeah, for sure. And I giggled when you said you were introvert friendly because I'm always, when I attend events that I'm not a part of, I'm always the one like hiding in the back with my video off, putting chat questions in like quietly hoping no one notices who I am. So if you are that person, don't worry, no judgment. (laughs) I think my job and books is probably like the one subject that I can talk about comfortably in public. So I'm glad to be here and I'm super excited to answer everyone's questions. I am a literary agent for Westwood Creative Artists based in Toronto, in Ontario, in Canada. It is extremely hot here right now. We are going through a heat wave, so it's been good times. I've been with Westwood since uh, 2020. I moved there from the Wrights Factory where I started off as an agent and I took a pretty windy path into publishing. I'm settled now and I'm really happy to be where I am. I love my agency a lot and I hope to be here for a really long time. I have a client list that I brought with me from the Wrights Factory along with obviously some new faces that have joined over the last couple of years and I love my clients and I'm happy to tell you all about their work. So yeah, it's I'm super, super excited to be here. It's really an honor. Thank you so much. Welcome, <laughs> Emmy and everybody else. It's so great. How did you get started started in publishing? And when did you know you wanted to work in publishing? So my story is a little bit different from most people's, I would say. I spent a lot of time really trying to figure out what it was I wanted to do. And when I say a lot of time, I like really mean it. I entered publishing in my early 30s and it was a winding road to get here. I didn't do a publishing program at school or anything like that. I actually studied social work for my entire university education and I had tried out a few things before that. A lot of people like to ask me about my circus school days, which I did before I went to undergrad. So if yes, please tell us more. get restless and want to know more later, I'm happy to no, no, more about now. that part of my life. More now. I Yeah, I did that before I went to university. So I studied at the École de Cirque in Quebec City. I studied juggling and group acrobatics. And I actually, that's like how I paid my way through undergrad was coaching, doing arch- mostly artistic coaching, but also acrobatics and things like that. Yeah, it's been a very winding road. I ended up working at an indie bookstore in Toronto because of my social work background. They were looking for someone to help curate like 75% of their business was with educators and libraries and university profs and things like that. Through the school boards, especially, they really needed someone who was able to curate diverse book lists for people who were looking for classroom libraries or university course syllabi, that kind of thing. And I was a huge bookworm. And so I started working there. I worked there full time for about four years and I loved it. It was like the first time I was in the middle of my PhD. I was like, my life was madness. And it was the happiest I'd ever been in a job was this like little minimum wage retail position. It was the highlight of my life. So I started thinking to myself like, okay, how can I take the research background and academic publishing background I have 
have and turn this into more of a career that I can do that's more sustainable. Because also if anyone who's ever worked in a bookstore will tell you it is backbreaking work, so many heavy boxes. <laughs> and we did a lot of offsite events. So there was a lot of driving, a lot of carrying cases of books around. And so I started thinking about what kinds of things I could do that was were like still in the world of publishing, but maybe a little bit easier on my body in the long term. And it was actually listening to a podcast episode while I was road tripping. I was driving from Toronto to Denver and there was this episode that was all about like how agents spend their days. And I started thinking, oh, it sounds very similar to a lot of the work that I was doing as a PhD researcher and a research assistant. And I was like, that's interesting. And so I had a couple of friends who were working as agents to, I sent emails to, and I was like, how did you start your job? There's no real, like, how do you do this guide for agenting? And they were like, well, you just start. <laughs> so when I was getting close to the end of my PhD, yeah, I got this amazing opportunity. The Rights Factory was incredibly generous and took a chance on somebody who knew nothing at all. And they gave me an internship. And shortly after I started agenting with them. And when I got the offer to move to Westwood, they were incredibly gracious and supportive, which was lovely. Westwood was like a dream opportunity, one that I never thought I would have. And so it's been, yeah, I've been really lucky in this industry and very happy, slowly building. Like I think anybody who's an agent will tell you it takes a long time to have a steady income and all of that kind of stuff. I wouldn't say it's the easiest career path, but it's definitely been as fulfilling as I hoped it would be. I really love this work. So yeah, it's been a weird road to get here, but I'm happy to be here all the same. It's <laughs> an amazing journey. And I have a follow-up question for you. Yeah, of course. Because I'm thinking about, we have a lot of kids here in our around town doing the circus stuff. And like, it's such a, it's so much, a circus is so much like a novel, right? Yeah. How much <laughs> How much does the spirit of the circus come into your agenting today? Does it? Or is yeah, that just I, a weird question? No, so. it's definitely not a weird question. I think especially like one of the things I realized as I was doing social work, because I had taken a weird path into social work as well, obviously from like the circus school background, it wasn't like <laughs> most people's next choice, but I really enjoyed teaching and I really enjoyed like the creative aspect of my work. And at the time, I didn't enjoy the performance as much as I enjoyed like building the performance with people. So actually, like the nature of the work is not that different. Like, I know that sounds really odd to say, but I used to do a lot of especially like semi-professional circus coaching where people would have an act that they were working on and they would want help with like where in the music is a good place to put like a big trick that'll make it really dramatic. Or like, how do I tell a story through this routine? Because anyone who's ever seen the modern circus act, so like the Cirque du Soleil and that kind of style. It's very much about storytelling. And so I spent a lot of time teaching people how to create a narrative arc, how to create a satisfying climax. The actual coaching wasn't unlike doing editorial work with someone who's writing a novel. If something's not hitting right, it's the same kind of analytic process. I think the creative aspect of my work has always been something that I've been really inspired by. Like when I was a kid, I really wanted to be a, an author. When I was like four and five, I wanted to be the, the great American novelist. And I feel like now, like the more I've gotten older, the more I find it more fulfilling to help other people realize their works. I still write for fun, but for me, it's so fulfilling to be able to give people that platform when I know that they have something that other people want and other people need in their lives. And yeah, it's, I wouldn't say it's actually very different in terms of the I don't know, like the creative processes that I use are very similar to what I used to do in circus, even though that sounds 
like it's a world apart. <laughs> I think that makes sense. And I like how you said that there isn't really like a how to be an agent book. <laughs> no, <laughs> I wish there was. <laughs> Maybe that will be my like great American novel one day. Who knows? But oh, like, yeah, there's no how to guide, unfortunately. And there are so many approaches too. I think that's one of the yeah. things that I learned. I remember the first time I was doing my first deal and it was terrifying because it was two offers that were similar and dealing with right. two of them together back then you had to do it on the phone so <laughs> i've had to do a few on the phone and it's terrifying <laughs> <laughs> terrifying and it's funny because the way that my boss then guided me through it is very different than the way my boss now would say to go about it i didn't realize that so much of it was a style choice Oh, a hundred percent. I think that I always joke with people. It's like the wild west out here. Like sometimes my authors will say to me, can we do that? And I'm like, like nothing says we can or can't. So it's really about what we feel is going to be right in this situation. There's no, yeah, there's very few like hard and fast rules in publishing. And so I think a lot of it is part of the reason I'm so grateful to be at Westwood is because some of the agents there have been working in the industry like longer than I've been alive. <laughs> and so it's nice to have my own style, but it's also nice to be like, okay, how have you done this in the hundreds of times you've done this before? And having that guidance is from multiple sources as well. Like it's a small agency, but of course everybody has their own kind of approach. I'm really grateful that my all of my colleagues and my supervisors are like incredibly generous with talking about what's worked, what hasn't, because yeah, it changes over time, but it's also, it has so much to do with just your personal relationships with people and what makes you comfortable in your work, what your communication style is, all of that stuff. Yeah. I wish that there was more of a straightforward guide, but I don't think it's really something that's practical. <laughs> yeah. I talk about it like when you're learning to drive and you're at a four-way stop and you're going to turn left. And at first you're like, where do I have to look? Oh my gosh, cars. Exactly. Right. If there's a car from up there. Oh my God. Yeah. And then you learn where you have to look. Okay, look here. Those are the things you need to worry about. And then you can exactly. you know, safely turn left. I think it's one of those things where it's like, there could be a guidebook, but there would have yeah. to be so much of you could do the following 27 things, depending on what feels right. It's like a, it would be like a choose your own adventure guidebook. Yeah. yeah. Turn to page, Turn to page four. Page yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Not Turn to page seven. Practice. If there's a global pandemic going on, turn to page 13. If there are supply shortages at your printer, like, yeah. Grip out page 13 if you need paper. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So could you tell us some of the things that surprised you about working in the industry that can give us the idea of what it's like behind the desk? Because I know that I can't ethically take anyone into my submission pile and show them what it's actually like in there, though they yeah. make them all feel better. So can you think of a way to express to people what it's actually like? Yeah, I love my work. I don't think that there's much that I don't like, but there were definitely some things that were surprising to me. Even after I spent a lot of time talking to talking to other agents and during my internship, obviously I asked like a billion questions, but even so, once I started working, there were a lot of things that were surprising. I think that a lot of writers, even if they feel like they know and they have experience in publishing, if you've never seen a slush pile for an agency, the volume is incredible. That's one thing that like always, it always surprises me. Like right now I'm doing my turn as like the distributor of our submissions inbox. And every day I log in, I'm shocked. There are so many books out here. And the, it, that's not even to say that it's a bad thing because so many of them are incredible. There are so many good projects. And I wish that 
I wish that I could reassure every querying author who gets a pass from an agent that it's not really about the quality of their book a lot of the time. It really is, at least at our agency, so much of it comes down to the fit between the agency or the agent individually and the client or the book. And that's one thing that I wish that I could convey to people sometimes because I know how heartbreaking it can be to get those passes or not hear back from people. The other thing that like, I think about my actual work that surprised me was how much there was to learn about contracts and accounting and (laughs) how much paperwork there is. I'm definitely more at ease with it now, but when I first started, I hadn't done math since high school. (laughs) I was like in this humanities profession where I was doing social sciences, qualitative research for years and years. And yeah, I had done like calculus in high school, but that doesn't really help you decoding a royalty sheet, for example. (laughs) Yeah. All the math and accounting is a lot. And I think that it can be such a weight lifted off of an author's shoulders to not have to take care of that on their own, which is something I'm always really happy to be able to do for my clients is to like take some of that stress and maybe responsibility even like off of their mind so that they know that the accounting is being done well and all of that kind of stuff. But it's definitely, there was definitely a learning curve there for someone who didn't have that kind of a background at all. What else? I think like the amount of time that we spend on our jobs is probably, I think it's well known. I don't think it would surprise a writer because they spend so much time on their own books, but I'm a very editorial agent. I love working on editorial, helping my clients, especially the ones who are new to publishing or who are new to writing entirely, craft their books to be the best they can possibly be before they go out on submission. But man, sometimes the hours that go into those books, I don't know that it's always obvious, like how many late nights and weekends and that kind of thing there are. So I hope that people know how passionate agents are about the books that they send out because I don't think I would be able to spend that much time on something I didn't truly believe in. And I feel like so often I even have, I, it always makes me so sad when my clients worry about whether or not I'm going to something that they send me, because if I didn't love their writing, like we wouldn't be having the conversation. So I wish that everybody had the confidence to, to know that all the time. I wish I had more time to spend just like loving on people. Yeah, absolutely. Because we know that if you aren't feeling good, you're not going to create your best book. And so like we want to be there for you emotionally, too. I'm not 24-7. We just can't. I don't think think any human has that level of energy, but I think that's really important. And going back to the thing about royalty statements, I was actually joking with another agent the other day that probably even the IRS couldn't figure it out. Probably not. We actually did a professional workshop through, we have the Canadian equivalent of the agents association here and they offered like a royalty statement like decoding workshop and it was partially for people new to the industry but a lot of really experienced agents went too and let me tell you everybody had questions one of the agents who's been around for a really long time and had an accounting background brought like a wide variety of royalty statements for everybody to look at on the screen and go through together and there are things that like Yeah, you just don't expect, especially on foreign statements or like really specific niche contracts that are like for a specific subright. Like you just, yeah, some of those, I don't think a tax body would know what to do with them. Why do they all have to be so different? Right. Just choose one format and stick with it, please. Yeah, no. Absolutely not. My favorites are the ones when we get like the custom spreadsheets that are like the most complicated Excel documents you've ever seen in your life. And you're just like, how is this happening? (laughs) Oh my gosh. It's so interesting that you guys are so there for your clients and touchy-feely and emotional support. And then you're just like contracts. It's so interesting. So as we look at the questions that we have from the audience, we want to start with the ones that are bigger, the bigger questions that applies to everyone. And then we'll go into some of the more specific genre questions. 
there's a list of editors and at imprints I think would be a good fit for my novel. How do I reverse engineer my search for an agent to partner with who submits work to these editors? Oh, that's a really good question. I've never gotten that question before. So I have two answers to this. One is that I always ask my clients if they have suggestions of editors and imprints that they want to work with. And I sometimes I do that before I sign them if their book is like really close to ready for submission. But sometimes that conversation happens a little bit later. More often than not, full transparency, it's later because so much changes all the time in publishing. People are always moving around. So it's difficult to make a submission list like a year in advance because you never know where everyone will be in their lives a year later. So that's one thing is that you could ask whoever, whatever agents you're working with or you're querying, you could always ask them, are you open to suggestions? Because I know that some agents are a little bit more independent when they're building the submission list and some are a little more open to input. So yeah, that could be one way to approach it. In terms of like reverse engineering that list, I would say that the easiest thing to do is that if you feel like you have kind of a knowledge of the editor's like politics and interests. I think if you're trying to find an agent that has similar like values and interest areas, I think they're in general going to know each other. That wouldn't be like a guarantee. I don't know, obviously, like every editor in the business or anything, but I think that the people that you tend to like network with and stay the most in touch with are the people that you tend to have the most in common with. And part of that is just like normal, like human socialization. Every few months I'll go through and say, who haven't I heard from in a long time? Or if I'm looking at publisher's lunch or something and someone's got a promotion and I really like them, then of course I'm going to send them an email to like congratulate them if we have a personal relationship anyway. So I would say the people that I'm closest with are the ones who I tend to have the closest relationships with anyway. And so if I would say like the way to do that as a writer might be through social media would be like the easiest or through manuscript wish list, through query tracker. If people have blogs or personal websites where you can really get a sense of the kinds of things they look for. If those things are similar, I would say chances are good that the agent and the editor would know each other because naturally you're always looking for, at least for me, I'm always looking for editor contacts who like the same kinds of books I do because those are the kinds of books I represent and they're the kinds of books they're looking to acquire. So I don't know that it's, that's like an exact science kind of answer, but hopefully it's helpful. <laughs> I love that it's true in our industry that you're going to end up working with the people you genuinely like. That surprised me at first. At first yeah. I was like, I have to force it and everybody equally. And it just does not work that way. It's so, <laughs> so cool. And some people just want to talk about sports, you know? And <laughs> the people in publishing are as varied as the books that come out so, like naturally like I don't really represent a lot of sports memoirs I might if it was the right book but in general it would have to have another kind of angle so if an editor is only looking for like athletic memoirs like we're probably not going to have any reason to know each other because we wouldn't be working on the same things anyway so yeah unless we have something else in common then chances are good you're not going to be in the same circles. But another way to reverse engineer this, say, for example, you find an imprint that just feels like it's got a strong personality that matches your book. Say you just feel like Berkeley or Penguin is a great fit for you. They have a really strong totally. personality, like everyone knows a Berkeley book. You could go <laughs> onto your publisher's marketplace, type in Berkeley yes. and see which agents are selling there. Um, yeah, and that's kind of when you go to the bookstore, you look in the acknowledgments, you see who they think. If they only mention their editor, go check out who sells to their editor. Yeah, um, absolutely. I think that's the way to do it. Absolutely. <laughs> and I would say is don't be shy to ask agents also, like if they have a relationship with that person, 
when you talk to them on the phone, when you have a call or when you are exchanging emails with them. I work with a lot of marginalized authors and they do tend to come with, if not like a specific person, then definitely a specific approach they're looking for in an editor. And so I spend a lot of time, like when I'm networking, asking editors about what kinds of accessibility things they're comfortable with, what kinds of accommodations they're able to offer, like all of that kind of stuff. And especially if it's an author who, or an editor who is a white editor who works with a lot of BIPOC authors, like what their process is for like making sure people get appropriate cultural support and consultation and all of that kind of stuff. Yeah, I would say don't be shy to have those conversations with agents. Okay, Cheryl, would you like to ask your question next? Hi. Sure. Hi. Okay. First of all, thanks so much for doing this. No uh, and my question was, can you provide some insight into an author being part of the LGBTQIA community, but writing a YA story about a protagonist of the opposite gender? Is this a deal breaker for you in offering representation? No, definitely not. I would say there are levels of sensitivity, especially in representation, I think that I look for in authors. I would say that there's a balance to be struck between having an awareness of really responsible, diverse representation that is like thoroughly researched, carefully consulted, like really respectful representation and like still being able to explore things in a creative space as an author. And so I would say that like on the surface, like the question you're asking, definitely not a deal breaker. Like any person writing in a different gender, I would say for me is not a deal breaker, no matter what sort of story it is. My one caveat to that would be like if people are cisgendered and they're writing trans characters or non-binary characters, I always have questions for the authors who want to do that. So what kind of, have you done any sensitivity reading or consultation around that? Have you worked with like the types of people that you're looking to represent? What is your motivation for that? And why do you think that it's like important in your book and for you as a writer to do that? Those kinds of things matter to me. But I would say in general, no, like I don't know that I have any like hard deal breakers. The advice that I normally give to authors who are developing new stories and looking to have their books reflect the world around them without treading into politically contentious or like potentially sensitive territory is that generally speaking, I try to caution people to think about characters as who you're qualified and who you're comfortable representing as your point of view characters versus your side characters. So like, for instance, for me as like a white agent and also as a white reader, I don't typically gravitate very strongly toward authors who are white, who are writing BIPOC protagonists, like writing from the point of view of a BIPOC character, because I think it's very difficult to achieve. And I also think that there have been enough voices from the BIPOC community who have said, stop it, let us tell our own stories. So I feel similarly about cisgender people writing transgendered characters, although there is there are some exceptions to that because gender can be so fluid for people. So there, I don't want to be gatekeepy in the queer community about who can identify how. And if you don't use these pronouns, you may not have a character who uses these pronouns. Like those kinds of things I think are really unnecessary and like sometimes harmful. But I do like to have conversations about like how to approach things like that. So I wish I had a clearer answer for you, but the simple answer, the summary answer is no, that's not a deal breaker for me. Okay. That's good to know. I, I appreciate yeah. it. <laughs> no problem. And hey. thank you so much for your questions. These questions are like really nuanced questions. I really appreciate it. Yeah. An amazing group. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and I, and I think, I think it's like such a, like that answer was just really resonated with me that. And that it's right what you know, what yeah. you really know. But then there's so many lovely people around 
that person, if you're a white straight person, you still have an you have a whole world to populate. Acquaintances and neighbors, and it's just it's people are people. Absolutely, and I also feel like there's some like for me, a lot of magic happens in books when people think about approaching the world reflecting diversity in really creative ways. Mm -hmm. So it doesn't even. I think people get hyper focused on characters sometimes. Like I know that like for me as a human, like one of the one of my favorite types of food to eat is Asian food. I love Asian food. We eat it all the time in our house. We cook it. My partner and I are both like very white. Our families are very white, but we make hot pot for dinner. We like, we go out when we have like a chance to go for a fancy meal. We go for sushi. Like we're very, both of us just really like Asian flavors. And to me, it's always weird when in books, people who like are representing a certain position in the world, like they can still go for Mexican food, even if they're not Mexican. <laughs> they can still, exactly. <laughs> you can still go to like a Bangra dance show. You can have your characters do things that make the world more diverse and more rich and more interesting that don't even necessarily involve like the sexual orientation or like the color of the character's skin. Absolutely. And I feel that way about queer books too. Like often, I mean, as a queer person moving through the world, like there are spaces and places that are queer coded. Right? When you walk into those places, like, oh, other queer people work here, or like other queer people come here. And whether you're a queer person or a straight person, like you can still go to those places. And so characters in books can do that too. Like, for example, one of my favorite picture book authors is Jessie Seema. She wrote Not Quite Narwhal, but she also has a number of other books. And Harriet, there's a book about a girl named Harriet with costumes. Anyway. Harriet Gets Carried Away, I think is the title. And it's about this little girl and it's literally about her like wearing costumes and getting ready for this party. It has nothing to do with queer identity or anything like that. But her dads are queer. And in the book, you get to see all these people in the illustrations who like have piercings and who are clearly from different racial backgrounds and all of that kind of stuff. And it just, if we could see more of that in adult literature, I think that would be really interesting. So I love moments like that. They make me so happy. Agreed. Rick was asking about resources for finding what agents are looking for other than MSWL, if you can think of anything. Oh my gosh. I wish that there was an easier answer to this. I feel like people ask this all the time and I feel like I always give the same answer and it's never a satisfying answer, but I would say definitely check out their social media. I tweet all the time, the like random book concepts that I think are interesting. I think that can give you a sense of an agent's sensibility. I would definitely look at like their recent deals, although sometimes that can be I feel like sometimes recent deals can be a bit of a red herring for both editors and agents because if they've already published say five books in one genre, like they may not be still looking for that, but it'll at least give you an idea of what they've done in the past. Definitely like I podcasts, I think are an amazing resource. A lot of agents will have like on their personal websites or on their agency websites, like a list of places they've appeared in the past. That can be a really good idea. Definitely conferences and things, although so often there are cost barriers to that. But if you are able to get in with pitch contest or something, sometimes people can give you like a really great idea that way. Yeah, I wish that there were other more concrete resources, but I feel like they are very disparate. The research, It's a lot of legwork to do that research, unfortunately. I wish my answers could always be both thorough and positive. <laughs> I'm, like, <laughs> I'm always looking for like, how do I put a positive spin on this answer that doesn't really have a great answer? I'm sorry. Perhaps you can on the next one. I like the next one because everyone hates synopses. So Mary, <laughs> would you come up and ask your synopsis question? Hello. 
Hi. Hi there. Hi. Yeah, I was just wondering about average length. I've written mine and I don't know if it's on point or not. <laughs> Fair. And what do you think should be in there? Tell us, do we want spoilers? Do we not want spoilers? Do we want bullet points? Does it need to be linear? Should it be fun? Should it be boring? <laughs> oh I would like. I would just like to say what when we start talking about synopses, my stomach gets a little bit feeling, <laughs> and I'm like, and I have a physical response. That's how hard they are. They're so hard. Yeah, and I wonder if everybody you asked this question to would have a different answer. Like, I can definitely tell you my feelings about it. I think that there are some feelings of mine that are like standard, and some that are probably just personal preference. Um, I would say that there is like a standard around like the one and three page synopsis is like are like the things that I have encountered the most and that I tend to expect when I ask people for synopses. So with my clients, I tend to be fairly open because I know how hard they are to write. And I am the type of person who wants every detail in the synopsis. I am the type of person who wants to know all the spoilers. So I want to know especially the ending because for me, the purpose of requesting a synopsis is really to see like how narrative arc plays out through the book. So I like it the best when the synopsis can reflect the tone of the book as well, whether that's like through the writing style or through like literal kind of notes about this is the kind of atmosphere that we're going to encounter here. So in terms of whether they should be fun or not, they're obviously more fun when they're fun, but I like it the best when I can get a sense of the author's writing as well. I usually ask people like, do you have a one page synopsis if I need one that's really short, but otherwise I would say between one and three is like pretty normal for what I would expect. When I get really long ones, I definitely lose interest. Caveat. <laughs> I am an impatient reader and I would rather just read the book once we get into five or 10 page synopses. I'm like, we're done here. So, so yeah, when I do don't you read it. I read it before I read the book. So if I get a query and I read the query letter and I'm like, okay, yes, this checks all the boxes. And then I read the writing sample and I'm like, good, awesome. This is super interesting, like really good writing. And I feel pretty confident about the book. Usually I will ask for a synopsis at that point because I want to see where the book is going in terms of the plot and in terms of the pacing, especially pacing is such a huge it is the bane of my existence right now as an agent. But yeah, I definitely want to see like where we're going and how we're going to get there. Wait, so it doesn't bother you to know? I actually prefer to know. <laughs> I know people get so shocked by that, but I am a really anxious human being. And I, even movies and things like that. Have you ever watched a TV show where every episode ends on a cliffhanger? Or like even... Maybe not even the episode, but there's like, I grew up in the 90s. There's like a commercial break with a cliffhanger. Like, I don't even want to wait until after the commercial break. Like, it's too much for me. <laughs> so if I could know exactly how everything was going to go in advance, yeah, I totally would. <laughs> oh, that is so amazing. I do the opposite. I, I, there have been times I, I walk in on a, do the opposite. Yeah. There have been times because you can only read a thriller for the first time once, right? Exactly. And so yes. you need to know as you're going, did I totally see this coming a mile away? Or is it so that to me, you can only do if you haven't read the synopsis, but unless yeah. you have a superpower, I don't know about. No, I think that I, I think I look for that same sense of I think when I'm reading the synopsis, that's what I that's the mindset I'm going in with, though, is, OK, where are we going? Do I have I predicted this or is this going to be totally shocking to me? And then when I get into the actual book, then it's more about like the pacing and the like, I guess the more I always feel like very artsy when I'm talking about like the poetry of the writing. But like once I know, OK, this plot is definitely something I'm here for, then I want to know what did you do to like make it really sparkle? I think and I keep like I, I was trying to interrupt we don't usually and this happens when we do our podcast without we all start talking because we get really excited 
Oh, Jessica, move away. I'm talking about pot synopsis here. But it almost, I think as writers, we all hope that you guys don't read them. And so it almost felt for when I heard you talk about them, you literally know you might sign via the synopsis. So I, I'm like the worst, honestly. I feel like I am everybody's like best worst nightmare as an agent because <laughs> I could probably tell you from the query letter whether or not I'm going to sign someone most of the time, to be honest. You tell I us have, about that. Tell <laughs> us about that. I just have, I feel like I have very strong... I'm a very big emotion person. Like when I feel things, I feel them very strongly. And so if I get super, super excited about a query letter, like that's usually a really good sign for me that like it's going to carry through the whole way. The That also makes me a total like emotional roller coaster when I'm screening queries because the worst is when I get so excited about a query letter. And then there's something in the book that like, especially when it's my like the most heartbreaking passes I think for everybody are the ones where like I get into the book and I'm like oh like this just isn't quite ready yet or it just needs these few other elements and so I wish I could do revise and resubmit on every single query I get because I could probably tell people exactly why if I had the time and capacity to give everybody editorial feedback that would be like the dream <laughs> but yeah like I I definitely have strong gut reactions to things I think there are very few clients who I've read the query letter and I've read the writing sample and I've been like, eh, and then I've ended up signing them after being blown away by the full book. Like it's quite often the letter and the sample that like make the decision for me. And then the book is like the icing on the cake. I always read the book first for sure, because you have to get a sense of that, like the execution and the narrative arc and especially pacing. I'm such a stickler for pacing. So the book is like really important, but I would say that, yeah, for me, I make quick decisions. So I like, I am very systematic when I go through queries, but I do definitely have a system of like checks and balances in my head of, have you given this a fair shake? Can you tell us about your volume of queries? Yeah, absolutely. I would say like when I'm open, like just open to queries on average, I get between 30 and 40 a week. And then there are other agents at our agency that it gets up to like 50 or 60 a week when they're like busy. And there are some that like they only open for referrals because like they just get too many. Otherwise it's just not sustainable. So it's a lot. <laughs> I'm happy with my volume because it means I have time to actually sit with all of them. Once you get above 10 a day, like that, I, wow, it's just a lot of brain power. It was and a lot of emotional that. energy. Sorry? It was so lovely and restful when it was paper because then people had to actually think about where they were sending them instead of just <laughs> BCCing everyone with yeah. an email address attached to an agent. And yeah. yeah, it quadrupled as soon as we went from paper to digital. Oh, I bet. Okay, I'm trying to think of a nice way to ask this question. Someone wanted you to do math on the spot, not saying any names, Allison. So we're not going to do that because that is very mean to somebody to ask them to do math on the spot. So I'm going to ask you in a non-math way, Allison. I'm just teasing. It's just we cannot, like, seriously, you go out to lunch with an editor and then they're like, hold on, I have to do math. <laughs> Can you explain to us math optional, how a book earns out? Oh gosh, yes. I can do that. It, you're right that the math is complicated, but I can definitely do that. So when we send a book out on submission, people ask all the time, like, what advance can you expect on a book? And uh, my honest answer is that you can't expect anything. Like there is a range. And I would say that there is like a more common range and a less common range. But over the course of the last like few years, when I've been working, I've been working full-time as an agent the whole time, I've sold books that have had a $0 advance and I've had 
books sell like in the high five figures. So like the range is massive. I always try to encourage my authors to think of their advance as like, it's obviously a high advance is like amazing for everybody. It's great when a book has a nice figure attached to it, but it can be a bit of a double-edged sword because you do want your book to earn out, right? You want to get to like royalties are the more sustainable form of income on a book than an advance is. And so I, even when it's a big preempt or something like that, like I always caution my authors against going too high or what we think is too high, because we want to make sure that they get to a point where the book does earn out its advance. It's complicated (laughs) is the math answer, but basically there's like an industry standard royalty for hardcover, for paperback, sometimes for second printing or third printing. There's also royalties obviously on things like ebook, audio, a film option. I'm trying to think of all the other, there are so many like little sub rights, like book club, for example, is a really common one. So if your publisher gets contracted by a big book club to sell like a special edition of the book or like a discounted version of the book or a version of the book with a book club guide in the back or a discussion guide, something like that, there's a different rate for that than there is for like regular sales of books, any kind of like translation, like adaptation, obviously, like into if your book gets turned into like a podcast or a serial or something like that, they all have different percentage figures attached to them. So obviously like this, that's why the math answer is hard because for every copy of the book that's sold, you're getting a certain percentage for whatever that format is. Obviously, the simple answer is sell as many hardcovers as you possibly can because they're the format of the book that has, generally speaking, the highest royalty rate. But there are exceptions to that. So in some cases, like the ebook, for example, because it costs nothing to produce, sometimes ebook and audio have like really fantastic rates compared to what the cover price is. But that also gets complicated when you get into situations like subscription services, for example, for audio have a different royalty rate than like outright sales. So the math gets really complicated and that's why royalty statements are incredibly difficult to decode. But I would say that like in general, the things that earn out the advance the fastest will be subrite sales. So if you end up selling your book in another territory, for example, because usually the advance for that if it's sold by the publisher, the advance for that book will be counted against the advance that they paid you. So say if you sold your book for example, for French translation, and the French publisher offered you, I don't know, $5,000 American for that translation, then that $5,000 would be counted against your advance. So if your advance was $15,000, now you only owe 10. And so once all of those royalties and everything add up to the amount that they paid you on your advance, that's what we mean when we say earning out. So any money that you make for your publisher counts against your advance. And once the advance has been like, paid off, you can think of it as like a credit card, then you get the amount that's being earned by the publisher through the royalties goes straight to you. And that's the good part because the book, like it, ideally, obviously it sells a whole bunch in its first year, but if it keeps selling after that, then it means that you can keep earning money on it for the entire life of the book. So the more long lasting your book is, the better and more sustainable your payments will be over time. Does that sort of answer the question without doing too much math? (laughs) Except unlike with the credit card, you don't have to pay it back if it doesn't earn out. Yes, also true. There's no penalty if you don't earn out, except that you won't get additional money from the book. But I will say that in some cases, so my very, 
I think it was my very first deal was actually a digital first imprint with a big, big five publisher. And so we didn't actually get an offer for an advance on that book at all. And it was in, it was from the UK as well. So it was like a bit of a weird, this book went through quite a journey, but Suffice to say, it became a very big success ultimately, and it was fantastic for the author and for me. Because we had gotten no advance, we went straight to royalties. And so from the very first book that was sold, we were earning money on every single copy. It was a Canadian bestseller. It didn't, I don't think it made an American bestseller list, but still like the number of copies that were sold in hardback in Canada was really impressive and she didn't have to earn anything back out. So even though the initial deal was like a little bit it felt a little bit disappointing, I think, like for her and also for me, because obviously you spend all this time writing a book. It's very difficult to agree to a publisher. Sure, we'll just give you this. But ultimately, like it ended up being a more sustainable earning process for her because there wasn't this boom and bust of you get paid your entire advance and then you get nothing for a while. So there are definite drawbacks to having a really big advance. There are definite drawbacks to having a really small advance too, but if you can aim for the royalties and keep that big picture in mind, I think that's usually ideal. And digital publishers often pay monthly instead of bi-annually. Exactly. So yeah. Yeah. Thank you for going through that. that was <laughs> no problem. And I think that's something that I've heard stories of writers and like their books, they are journeys. And sometimes like your first book will be out there and the second book does really well. And they cut, it goes back to the first book. And all of a sudden it starts selling world rights and movie rights, and all of these things. So you simply don't know. And so it's just like being there for the journey, I think, is the most important part of this. And the relationships that you create with people along the way, we always say that at the Manuscript Academy, but yeah, I think it's really true. And I think that we beat ourselves up a lot as writers. What is your best advice for the writers out there? Oh my gosh. I feel the number one thing I want to tell everybody all the time is just don't give up. I think that I've had authors who I've signed them on like their third book. We haven't sold that one. We've come back with another one and it's sold and done great. But by that time, the author is like five books deep. You hope that like you go back and use those books as options and things later, or you rework them once you've built your skills more. But all of that is, it's so much dedication. Like I can't underscore for people enough the determination required to succeed in publishing in the current state of the industry. That bar is astronomically high. But the good news is it's something everybody can do. You know what I mean? There's nothing stopping you from being determined except yourself. So I think that the more support that you can find and the more that you can really stay the course and really have faith in yourself and in the stories that you want to tell, I think it plays a much bigger role in publishing success than sometimes it feels like it's playing at the time. I have a deal that I can't wait to announce. We're waiting on a contract team that's been having COVID difficulties. And so it's one of those ones that's like making me want to burst. But the book that we, it's the most satisfying book deal I've ever done in my career, because I think it was the third book if not maybe the fourth that I took on submission for this author and her stories are so good. Like I can, I am a hundred percent sure that we will sell the other books and that she's going to have a great career, but just the subject matter has been difficult to get editors to buy into. And when we finally did it, she wrote all of these books. I edited them all. In some cases, we went through like revise and resubmit with editors. We've tried a different age group. Like we've done some intense like rewriting entire books so that based on editor feedback, 
the whole thing. And finally, when we got somebody who was like, this is the book of my dreams, like I can't wait to publish this. I think it was like the best moment in both of our lives. But man, if she had given up at some point along the way, like there would have been no payoff, like there would have been nothing. And that's what's really hard about publishing is that it is these like peaks and valleys. It sounds like a cliche to be like, it's the people you meet along the way, but it really is. It's your critique group who's always going to be there. Hopefully you have an agent who's always going to root for you and be your cheerleader. Like your editor will also probably be that person for you once you get into that relationship. Those are the things that are sustaining in the industry, but definitely having that determination and not giving up and really having faith in your work is essential. (laughs) I mean, where can we find you online? Twitter for sure. I'm always on Twitter at Emmy of Spines with underscores in between. Spines like book spines, but also because I like spooky things. And obviously my agency website. And I also have my own website at, it's just my first name, like the award E-M-M-Y dot. So that one's an easy one to remember. Oh, one thing I wanted to ask before we go. You mentioned murder is your comfort read. Can you tell us a bit more about that? <laughs> For sure. I love spooky books. I grew up in a very unmoderated reading household. So I was like one of those children who read Flowers in the Attic way too young. I devoured Goosebumps and like everything by Earl Stein, Benicula, all of those like creepy and also tragic stories, like definitely read way too young, too, way too many things. And so I feel like the... F- formulaic nature of a murder mystery is really what I'm looking for when you know my heart's in a rough place I think some people get that watching like CSI on TV that kind of you know where the book is going but when it there's like twists that surprise you and things like that there's something about the unraveling of a murder mystery that I've always found very soothing (laughs) for better or worse I don't know what that says about me but (laughs) it's definitely the truth it's like we can figure out anything right Yeah, exactly. That's the thing. There's something really gratifying about feeling like you're on the right side of justice and you've done something good for the world. And also that you can be clever enough to unravel all of these like spooky clues. I think there's something really great about that. There's something very empowering in murder stories that I like to think at least is what appeals to me about them. Who knows what it really is, but I like a good rom-com as much as anybody. Don't get me wrong, but definitely I have spent many late nights up with a murder mystery. (laughs) Annie, thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much for having me. I would love to do this again. Your questions are brilliant. This has been like the most interesting publishing conversation I've had in a really long time. It's so fulfilling. So thank you so much. We have an amazing group. Yeah, very much. Great. Thanks so much. Bye, everyone. Bye. Thank you all for coming. We are so glad that you joined us. And as always, we appreciate your feedback. Just head on over to the iTunes store and let us know what you think. It not only helps us make this podcast be the best it can be, but it also affects our ratings within the iTunes platform. We'd love to hear from you. If you're feeling brave and want to submit your page for our first pages podcast, you can send it to academy at manuscriptwishlist.com with first pages podcast in the subject line. We'd also just love to hear from you. And if you'd like to learn more about the Manuscript Academy and everything we have to offer, just jump on over to manuscriptacademy.com.